It's Tuesday, September 3rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. It's official. Only 10 candidates qualified for the next Democratic debate, meaning they all fit on one stage, and it will only be one night. We're also going to finally get the Biden versus Warren matchup that didn't happen in the first two debates. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for this, the Democratic gamble of taking some very far-left positions, and also the policy legacy that President Trump is leaving behind. Many of his legislative wins could be cemented with another term, or easily reversed if he doesn't win. Next, China has a social credit system that rewards good citizens and punishes others for things like failing to pay debts, excessive video gaming, and criticizing the government. Punishments can range from bans on leaving the country, not letting your kids into private schools, and even being put on a public blacklist. While this system plays out there, Silicon Valley is building a parallel system brought on by tech industry user policy. Insurance companies can base premiums on what they find in your social media, and a company called PatronScan can also put you on a blacklist for getting into bars across the US and even abroad. Mike Elgin, contributor to Fast Company, joins us for the Silicon Valley social credit system. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. For the first time, going to have all of the front runners on the same yes. stage. This is going to mean that every opportunity is available for these top tier candidates to take any swings they want to take and to really give voters the ability to line them all up, see them side by side and start to really assess in real time which one they prefer. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. We now have the debate field set for September. It's only going to be 10 candidates to the relief of a lot of people, I think. I think the last two debates was a little unwieldy, two nights with 10 people each. So this time around, it's going to be Joe Biden, Cory Booker, Pete Buttigieg, Julian Castro, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, Beto O'Rourke, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Andrew Yang, who keeps sticking in there. Tell us what to expect for this next debate, Ginger. Not only do the political writers of America get a break and only have to work one night, the other upside here for viewers and those watching the debate is we're for the first time going to have all of the front runners on the same yes. stage. This is going to mean that every opportunity is available for these top tier candidates, which if we had to sort of break them off, we've got like a top three, Biden, Warren and Sanders, and then probably a, a next tier, which includes Harris and Buttigieg. Those five candidates or even just the top three have not been on the same stage together. So this will give them the opportunity to take any swings they want to take and to really give voters the ability to line them all up, see them side by side and start to really assess in real time which one they prefer. And the big matchup that we have and seen Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren. They're the, the only two that haven't really been paired together just yet. And uh, I, what are people expecting out of that? I mean, they generally have a pretty good relationship with each other, I think. They do. And, and neither one of them are inclined to go on the attack. They're not sort of attackers in their own right, but they're vying for some of the same voters. And we've seen Warren really grow her support in the last few months. And if she wants to overcome Biden to take him over as the front runner, she's going to have to convince people who currently support him to support her. What about everybody else who didn't make this debate? Some people have dropped out, like Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, but 
still there's some other people that are still in the race and there could be a potential that they qualify for the next debate in October. So that would kind of set up this awkward thing. What, do, what does everybody do in the meantime? So we saw those like Gillibrand drop out last week to say they couldn't make the debate. There wasn't really much of a rationale anymore and they have left. But others, you know, namely Montana Governor Steve Bullock, billionaire Tom Steyer, they have remained in the race. Part of the reason is that the qualification time window doesn't close and start over now that they've hit a deadline. So if you were only uh, a few donors short or a few polls short of qualifying, you now have another month to do it and you only need that one more poll or that 10 or 20,000 more donors. So they don't have to start all over. And so you're right, we could see more people on the stage in October. There might be a small silver lining there other than having to work two nights is that we could see five or six people on a stage. And in that case, we might get to see the candidates give a little bit lengthier answers or or get a little bit more in depth on some issues that they haven't. In, In this past case, though, polling was the hardest threshold to meet. And I know a lot of people are like, well, you're just not polling in there. So because, uh, you know, everybody's kind of griping a little bit. Well, you, you know, these thresholds are excluding some of us, things like that. But I mean, if you're not registering and polling, that's just a tough thing to square away. You know, they're not huge thresholds. They're not having to hit four or five, 10 percent. We're talking about in these polls. So not a large number of poll respondents responding that they are like you and and would vote for you. So you're right. We have heard a lot of animosity from some of the candidates who didn't qualify, particularly those like Tulsi Gabbard, who was able to meet, I think, the fundraising threshold, but not the polling threshold. It's also hard for these candidates to make much of a case that if you can't get to 2% in the polls after running for six or seven months after having been in two debates, that there's a path for you to the nomination. That's a hard argument to make. And that's the reason why I think the DNC is getting some cover, some defense for their decision to sort of impose that threshold. And while we still have a ton of candidates there, the larger fight is still kind of playing on in the background. All the Democrats are pretty far to the left with a lot of their proposals, Medicare for all, these trillion dollar climate plans. Is there a moderate candidate in this race? Everybody seems to embrace most of these issues. I would say Joe Biden proudly is occupying the centrist lane of this race. He was pretty unapologetically centrist in the last debate, criticizing Medicare for all, criticizing decriminalizing border crossings, Amy Klobuchar, the senator from Minnesota, has also been quite moderate on a number of these positions. She will be in this third debate. But I do think we've seen a little bit of a skewing to the left with the narrowing of the field. Candidates like John Hickenlooper, who presented a quite moderate position, is now gone. John Delaney, the businessman from Maryland, has not qualified. So Joe Biden will be a little bit more on his own to defend some of his more moderate positions in this third debate. On the other side, we obviously have President Trump. He has scored a few big legislative wins so far, but what I've been seeing is that a lot of this stuff could be easily undone if a Democratic president wins the White House. So the legacy of President Trump could be short-lived if he doesn't win another term. In this modern era of Congress doing 
much of nothing, very little at this point. Presidents, including President Trump, have depended heavily upon the use of executive orders. Republicans and Trump were very critical of President Obama's use of executive orders. That criticism seemed to sort of go away once President Trump got elected. So he has sort of embraced them. But you're right. Should the president get defeated in November of 2020, things like border wall construction would probably very quickly go away. Some of his directives on immigration on asylum-seeking immigrants would all potentially be dissolved pretty quickly by a Democrat who would uh, secede him. One of the places where the president has made a lot of headway is appointing conservative judges all over the place, even in the Supreme Court. And this is the thing that will last well beyond his first term, second term, whatever it is. That's right. President Trump, along with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, have really worked aggressively to change the face of the judicial branch. McConnell slowed, delayed, stalled, blocked a number of President Obama's nominees. That allowed President Trump to come in and just address a slew of vacancies and to really change the way that the court nationally is going to function for a long time. Now, let me caution you. We all think Republican judges are going to behave in Republican ways. But we can look at the Supreme Court. We can look at John Roberts, who voted to allow Obamacare to remain in place, who voted to legalize gay marriage, and see that really Republican-appointed judges sometimes do things that Republicans don't like. So it's not a legacy one can really control, and it's not a legacy written in stone. It still has the potential that decades from now we'll be saying that Trump-appointed judges did things that Republicans really don't like. Right. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Our, our lives are increasingly involving these technology companies that have these rules. And the cumulative effect is a social credit system. It's a system of punishing transgressions outside the rule of law. We need to stop pointing our fingers at China and start looking at what's happening with our own social credit system. Joining us now is Mike Elgin, opinion columnist and contributor to Fast Company. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Thanks for having me on. We're going to be talking about some interesting stuff. Have you heard about China's social credit system? It's a technology-enabled surveillance-based program that's designed to encourage citizens toward better behavior and punishes other citizens for doing bad things. This is a system that's been in place for about five years in China now, in some form or another. It's not a big nationwide system just yet. But you wrote an article talking about this Chinese social credit system and then how it could be coming to the United States through Silicon Valley and all the big tech platforms that we use. Help us explain this, Mike. China is, in fact, kind of descending into greater totalitarianism through technology. They're employing a lot of technology to crack down on dissidents, to censor free speech, etc. And it's gradually getting worse. The idea is essentially like a financial credit system where if you're irresponsible with your money in the United States, for example, you get bad credit. You don't get certain privileges, like it's harder to get a loan. It's harder to rent an apartment, those kinds of things. And so the Chinese social credit system takes that general idea and expands it in every way. So there's essentially a, a, a central nationwide system 
Uh, that's a lot more like financial credit. And then there are little towns in China that are experimenting with various things. They, for example, if somebody, if a store owner doesn't sweep in front of their store, they lose points and they get shamed on a public website or they can't get uh, a good rate on a loan. And there's, there's a gazillion transgressions that can get you. Right. And there's a gazillion punishments. There's even some rewards too. They'll give you points if you do some nice things. And so, in general, the Western reporting on the Chinese social credit system has been exaggerated. It's not quite as Orwellian as it sounds because most of it is experimental, and most Chinese people have never even heard of it. It's not really impacting people's lives. And to the extent that they've heard of it in China, most are in favor of it because, it again, it's, it's a replacement. So in the old days, we used to manage people's behavior through laws, you know, if you get drunk and scream at people, the police come and they say you're disturbing the peace and public drunkenness. We have laws and rules and their punishments, and you might get a fine or a ticket or jail time or something like that. So the laws, and then there's social norms that are enforced in various ways. So for example, if you're talking constantly in a theater, the theater might throw you out. This is not a law that you've broken necessarily, but the theater order has the right to take action for that theater. So these kinds of things exist in a long time. So right. social credit systems are a third system, basically. What they have in common is that a transgression in one sphere of life will get you a punishment in another sphere of life. So for example, if you get caught playing loud music on the train, your child might not get into an elite school. You mentioned that a lot of people in China might not even know that this type of thing exists. How widespread is it? The biggest impact that it's had on people is for people who have had financial troubles, which is kind of a traditional credit score type of issue. For example, if they didn't pay back loans, then a lot of people are being prevented from being able to fly on airplanes or ride on trains, literally millions of people. So it's more than 20 million people have been prevented from riding on a train for like a year. There's a time limit on it. And then something like seven, more than seven million people have been prevented from flying. And how does this relate to us now? There's a form of it happening currently right now in Silicon Valley. And the, as I said, the big tech platforms and in the user policies that we end up, you know, signing and approving without reading most of the time. But this has kind of made its way into insurance companies our social media, things like uh, WhatsApp, uh, Uber and Airbnb. There's little tiny forms of it already happening. So the way to look at this is that there are two types of transgressions, technically. There are transgressions that are actually violations of the law, and there are transgressions that are just, you're not being that nice. Or in the case of China, where you criticize the government, things like that, which they may have a law for that. It's not really clear whether that's a legitimate law, et cetera. In the United States, the reason I wrote this article is there's so much hand-wringing, there's so much finger-pointing at China for this totalitarian system that we've failed to sort of look at the total... A uh, result of various policy changes that have happened this year uh, in various spheres of our own lives that add up to a social credit system that I believe is worse than China's. So let me give you some examples. So New York State, which is very influential in the world of insurance, has essentially issued a rule earlier this year, I think it was in May, that says insurance companies are allowed to go on people's social media accounts and, and get information there that affects people's premiums. So if you if you have pictures of yourself online getting drunk with friends and smoking cigarettes in a bar or something like that, your insurance premiums might go up. So this is an example of 
activity in one sphere, in this case, social media, affecting you in another sphere, which is the, the amount you pay for insurance. So add to that things like Uber. Uber instituted a new policy recently where as soon as you get out of the Uber, just like you're invited to rate the driver, the driver is invited to rate you. And Uber has stated that riders, not drivers, riders who have a below average score will get banned from Uber. So the big question then is what's wrong with this type of system? You know, I, I, a lot of people would agree, let's kick the riffraff out. If you're being unruly, you know, nobody wants you here. You know, what's the big problem with that? And it's really creating kind of an alternative legal system that is outside of the justice system. This is all in these end user agreements that we're signing on to. That's right. So in the United States, we proclaim ourselves to be a nation of laws, which is to say that we are an immigrant country. People come from all over the world. People have different values, different religions, different everything, but we all are equal in front of the law. We have a presumption of innocence. We have a right to representation. We have the right to appeal. We have all these rights. So even a, even a small matter, if you, let's say you are caught with a dog in a restaurant or you did some other transgression, or you, let's say you trashed an Airbnb, that is and should be against the law to break people's property. And then what is supposed to happen is you're supposed to get a lawyer, go to court. If you're found guilty, you pay the fine or you do some jail time or you do something or whatever, but you're protected by the constitution. And so is the host, those of homeowner, everybody's protected by these rules. If you follow the trend lines, we're getting to the system where law breaking like that and other transgressions aren't punished in the legal system. They're punished outside the legal system by essentially Airbnb's uh, end user license agreement and Ubers and all the other competitors to those two companies. All these companies are essentially enforcing the law without the part where you're protected by rights. There's no presumption of innocence. There's right. no appeals process in most cases. There's no right to an attorney. None of those rights are there. You just get the punishment. So let me tell you about PatronScan. PatronScan is actually a Canadian company. And they have this great product for bar owners where you have a little kiosk or a tablet or something at the front door of a bar. And somebody comes up with their fake ID and you scan it. The system will say, oh, that's a fake ID. Or this is a person who was banned by another bar. Yeah, got kicked out for fighting or something. Ago. Yeah, well, you're fighting or getting drunk or so, you know, it's up to the bar owner or the manager to decide whether to put people on this list. But the thing is that if you're banned on the patron scan system in the United States, you're also banned from bars that use this product in the UK, in Australia and in Canada. And so you can go on vacation to the wow. UK and be turned away from a bar because somebody said you got in a fight six months ago in Milwaukee. and so. This is a whole new thing that is happening. It's not patron scan individually. It's not Uber or Airbnb individually or any of the other companies that I've mentioned or the insurance example I gave. It's the cumulative effect of all of these things. This new world we're entering into, our, our lives are increasingly involving these technology companies that have these rules and the cumulative effect is a social credit system. It's a system of punishing transgressions outside the rule of law. And I think personally, my, my big takeaway from this article is we need to stop pointing our fingers at China and start looking at what's happening with our own social credit system because we got one.
Mike Elgin, opinion columnist and contributor to Fast Company. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.